following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, hey. Here's a quick and dirty recap of the last episode, you beautiful listener, you. Hitler stole some important shiny things from Austria, and now army interrogator Walter Horn has been assigned to get it back, and with the help of his ass-kicking sidekick, maybe he'll do just that. If you haven't listened to the first part, hit that one up, uh, you know, first. Unless you like skipping the exposition and jumping right in, confusion and all, uh, then great, you're in the right place then. Uh, let's get into part two of Hitler's Holy Relics. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Welcome to Elton Reed's Book a Week, the podcast that's constantly at war with its creator. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. Before we begin, I just want to ask, uh, you know, how are you? How are the kids? Or lack of them? I don't know. Did did that thing you were hoping to get done, you know, get done? Well, oh, well, I mean, good or bad for that, right? I mean, Lord knows uh, uh, it, was a, uh, it was a long slash short time coming, or not. You know, how how have I been? Terrible. I've been working 40 plus hours and uh, crying randomly in my car. Seriously, it's been a it's been a heavy flow kind of time. I digress. This episode time is part two of the last episode podcast time. You get it. I tell you, I really don't mean for things like this to happen, but there are, there was just so much to look into, and it just pulled me in, and I had to share it. So I apologize. You know, <laughs> sue me. Uh, I think this shit's damn interesting. But also, please, please don't sue me. For now, let's make this sentence, uh, this next sentence, as painfully and awkwardly worded as possible, okay? Um, ready? Summarizing where we're at since the last episode, which if you haven't heard it, you probably should, or this episode won't make much sense. Oh man. Under the watchful eye of Bob's Stratos, let's go to summer some summarize sum up sum up. World War II is over, and Army Lieutenant Walter questions a German soldier to see what he knows. Walter has to ask him about Hitler's chemical weapons and where he might have left them should the war continue to go. The soldier didn't know so. He told him what he did know about some Nazis' hidden gold in a bunker hidden back home. So Walter writes a report, and then he's told to report to a major back in Frankfurt to find his info confirmed. But then there is a problem. He's learned he's assigned to solve it, and uh, he's got 21 days and that's it. And the only one to help him is a badass death machine named Private Eugene. Death comes for us all, so don't try to run dollar. Except for that last part, the rest is mostly accurate. Walter and Private Dollar take off for Nuremberg. Summary complete! Now, on with part two. War is hell, especially on old churches and schools and stuff. Oh, and people. Winston Churchill. Apparently, he said that while drunk and possibly 
uh, peeing himself. Not sure of the details, but that's according to a well-documented historical record that you can't find because mainstream historians are fucking cowards hiding the truth for their corporate lizard masters. Don't think we don't see you and what you're doing for Bill Gates and, uh, you know, faking your death, Mr. Paul Allen and all that. The truth is out there. Follow the clues, people, okay? Okay, I'll, uh, I'll stop the gibberish. Sorry. Nuremberg was a torn-up shithole when Horn and Dollar rolled into town. Like I mentioned in part one, 90-ish percent of the uh, city was transformed into piles of rubble. Walter thought he knew what to expect, but whoa, fucking hell. The four-day campaign to liberate Nuremberg had laid waste to large sections of the city. More than 800 Allied bombers and 11 separate missions had poured 14,000 tons of high explosives into an area no larger than a London suburb. 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 Mm. Goddamn. As Private Dollar drove him to the Palace of Justice, Walter Horn was surveying the damage and mentally trying to map out his investigation. He had read Captain Peterson's report of capturing the treasure bunker. It recounted the firefight that ensued when he and his team encountered heavy resistance trying to get to the bunker. Soldiers on both sides sprayed each other down with machine gun fire. They did capture the bunker, of course, but not after taking a lot of heavy damage from the German resistance. The bloody skirmish ended with... Both sides high-fiving each other, laughing and recalling the, quote, cool shit they did while shooting each other, unquote. They then complimented their opponents with phrases like, when you dove behind that rock pile while throwing that grenade that killed my best friend, bro, you look just like John Wayne when, uh, when he did that shit for real. It was awesome. Finally, they said they were sorry for killing each other. They tossed all the dead bodies on a fire, hugged parted ways. The Germans loudly exclaiming in English, quote, the bunker's yours, fair and square, homies. You killed way more of our guys, so you beat us. Here are the keys and stuff. Good luck, American guys. We're going to go home to disband and uh, learn to play the accordion, make a lot of black and white art films, and drink until it's Oktoberfest. And then drink even more. And then off into the sunset they went. I I can't help myself, seriously. I I you have no idea how hard it is how hard it is to to try and stop being me. Uh I get these stupid scenes playing in my head and uh <clears throat> sorry. No, the US soldiers fought their way to the bunker, seized the shit out of it, and actually found it mostly unmanned on the inside. Short of the team of Nazi assholes outside of it, laying down heavy fire, the, uh, the bunker itself was empty of guards. Horn continued to process and incorporate this information into his strategy. He didn't have long to find those responsible and hopefully the treasure itself. He and Dollar making their way to the Palace of Justice. When I first uh, read that, I thought, why the fuck isn't the Justice League handling this shit? I mean, Batman could be curb-stomping all the Nazi layabouts. Wonder Woman could lasso, you know, the ones Batman wasn't stomping and wrangled the truth out of him while engaging in the uh, in the thinly-veiled bondage play that is her thing. And Superman could just threaten, just threaten to burn the Nazis alive with his laser beam eyes. You know, Aquaman 
drowning. I don't know. Nazis, maybe. Maybe maybe have some kind of waterboarding uh, situation happening. And the Flash could, uh, could run fast. Working together, though. I mean, come on. They, you know. Rousting the uh, the, civi- they, the civilians, they could, they could have that town rebuilt in a week. Unfortunately, um, this Palace of Justice and the one the Justice League uses are, uh, are not the same at all. First and foremost, the Justice League's headquarters is the Hall of Justice, not a palace. So there's that. Plus, you know, it, it, none of that is real. So, still, I feel like my comic book reflexes were on point, if just a little misguided. Private Dollar dropped Lieutenant Horn off at the Bavarian government building, which served as occupation headquarters for the U.S. appointed chief administrator of the city. Even without the flags and the military uh, police out front, you couldn't miss it. A quarter mile long line of civilians led from the cobblestone streets to its front doors. Horn incorrectly assumed that some special event was happening. Are they giving out free blowjobs and cunnilingus? He said, amazed at the amount of people that were there. And, uh, you know, of course he didn't say that. He was taken aback, though. That's a, that's a lot of motherfuckers trying to be seen by whoever. As it turned out, all those people were in the right place. And they were there to, uh, to air their grievances and get help. But the, uh, the guys they were there to see, the guys whose job it was to help them, um, they weren't there. Nope. Nope, they were at the Grand Hotel across the street from the train station. A, a guard told Horn this. Uh, he said, you should go check the, uh, the hotel's former ballroom. Uh, it's serving as the officer's club now. When he got there, at a little after 10 o'clock in the morning, the place was packed with military and civilians. A pianist was chopping out Broadway show tunes. The officers that were there... Weren't in full-dress uniform. You know, regulations had relaxed since the war's end, you know. But these guys looked like they gave even less of a fuck than not giving a fuck at all. They may have actually gone into negative fucks to be given. Judging from the phone lines running to the tables, um, Horn figured the entire 15 officer occupations team was there, getting shit-faced at 10 in the fucking morning. Walter asked around and found Captain John Thompson among the early morning booze hounds. Middle-aged, lean, and with jet-black hair ringed with stubble around his chin, sitting with two civilians, Captain Thompson looked every bit the part of a checked-out fuckhead in charge of things he couldn't control. From the uh, stack of U.S. Army requisition forms and files piled up in front of him, he could tell Thompson who was uh, supposed to be at command headquarters, was choosing to do his failing at life right here and uh, was doing it often. Walter dutifully stepped up, saluted, and introduced himself while uh, giving Captain Thompson the orders he got from Frankfurt. Thompson called him something along the lines of Kraut, which is, by most accounts, a pretty shitty thing to call any German person. Other than Nazi. I should note here, uh, for any listeners that aren't connected with the military or, you know, uh, know anything about it, the hierarchy of officer rankings in the military are as follows. We'll start from the top and make our way to the bottom, okay? So it goes like this. Five-star general, otherwise known as a, a 
general of the general of the army, sorry, um, is the highest rank. In World War II, there were four of them, and four of, uh, for the purposes of this episode here, General Dwight D. Eisenhower was one of them. Underneath the five-star generals, of course, are four-star generals, which is which hold the name of just general. Uh, that is the rank of uh, patent. Uh, when we mention him, he is he is a four-star general. Uh, below them, of course, are three-star generals, otherwise known as lieutenant generals. Then there's the two-star generals, or major generals. And then there's the one-star general, which is a brigadier general. And below them are colonels, then uh, lieutenant colonels, then major, um, and then captain, lieutenant. And finally, at the bottom of the barrel, second lieutenant. If you're not used to it, it can be a little confusing. So Walter, it, they just the book just says Lieutenant Walter. So he was either you know regular lieutenant or second lieutenant, one of those. But Thompson was on level three. Uh, he was a captain and a major. So when they refer to Major Hammond, or when it re- refers to Major Hammond, he is a, a level above Thompson. So onward I go. Thompson looked over the orders and repeated what he apparently told Major Hammond, the officer who gave Horn his assignment and sent him to find the jewels. It's pointless to send someone to Nuremberg to investigate the disappearance of artifacts that were in a Nazi bunker, bro. If the shit had been there at all, the Nazis probably took all that shit before we even got here. You're better off looking for that shit in Munich or Berlin or up your ass and to the left, bitch. Sorry, I'm paraphrasing. And uh, I just imagine Thompson is some douchey dude bro type. It's just stuck in my head. Um, Regardless, he offered no encouragement to Horn. Uh, He told him, in fact, that uh, Captain Peterson and the other soldiers who first entered the Blacksmith Alley bunker had been transferred out of the city. Just the same, Horn came back. I'll need to know everyone who has been inside the facility since the occupation forces arrived. Major Hammond told me that you would help me get started. Um, How soon could I get into the bunker? Boom, son! That's how you uh, put a brofacer in his place. I made that up. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. Thompson hemmed and hawed, but Walter didn't give a fuck. He only had 20 days left to either find the jewels or file a report that he had failed. Thompson a cock-ass, gave him a curt nod, which essentially meant, Fuck off, Walter Horn, you're, you're interrupting my day drinking. The question Walter asked himself after this encounter was, Is Thompson just your run-of-the-mill douchebag playing lazy douchebag games? Or uh, did he maybe have something to do with it? He didn't jump to any premature conclusions, but the question gnawed at him. Thompson was a member of the ruling elite notorious for its incompetence. They rarely went through boot camp, saw any combat, or gained rank by demonstrating skills, by demonstrating leadership skills of any kind. They were political appointees, prized for their ability to sell war bonds and perform behind a desk. The extent of their training was a year of political indoctrination at the University of Virginia. For the most part, He was a useful idiot who uh, had never set foot outside the United States before and resented anyone who wasn't American and was probably smarter than him. 
Walter figured that explaining the importance of the treasure was probably a lost cause on Captain Fuck's dick, so he tried a different tactic. Horn leaned forward and spoke in a hushed tone. Captain Thompson, perhaps there's another way I might get you to help me. The captain quickly shifted his gaze, searching the crowd and shadows for onlookers and, and possibly eavesdroppers. Go on, Lieutenant. Horn leaned in even closer and asked, Perhaps you'd help me if I gave you a dollar. Thompson, confused, looked at Horn. A dollar? Get the fuck! Suddenly, from the shadows, Private Dollar delivered a punch to the captain's head, sending him careening headfirst into the table in front of him. Files and papers flew into the air as glasses smashed to the floor. Dollar gripped the captain's hair, using it to bash his face into the gin-soaked wooden tabletop over and over, while Horn shouted, Where are the jewels? Where are the jewels? Where are the jewels? Ah, uh, uh, no, and, th and that really happened. I mean, holy shit. Fucking awesome. But uh, no, Horn took back the orders he had handed Thompson earlier and flipped to the back page, showing him that General Eisenhower himself expected a full report sooner rather than later, and that he intended to write one with or without the captain's help. Check mate, motherfucker. The captain then invited him to sit down while also dismissing his good morning drinking buddies. Uh, he then proceeded to explain to Horn the actual problem at hand. Nuremberg, surprise, surprise, was full of Nazis. Like, like so many Nazis. And they were super committed to the cause. So committed that they refused to surrender even after Hitler retreated to his bunker. Even after the tons of leaflets were distributed by the U.S. Army telling them about the fuck ton of bombs that were on their way. The Nazi problem was so bad that the city's police forces that the Allies thought might help, you know, quell unrest in the citizens, instead joined in with the civilians to fight the incoming U.S. forces. On top of that, after all the wholesale bombing and machine gun diplomacy, the army wasn't chop-chop enough with the setting up of a, of a food distribution and medical clinics, so lump that into the military order that was laid down that no Nazis were to be hired to help with the uh, rebuilding-slash-occupational infrastructure stuff. And shit in Nuremberg was really bad. Pretty tense and really disorganized, bro. Usually... In a not-so-Nazified town, you could find a few city officials who weren't true blue ride-or-die Nazis. They could help you out by showing you where shit was and the best routes to get to things. And they could lead efforts in rebuilding and tell you where, I don't know, all the keys to shit might be found. Um, Nuremberg, however, was Nazi top to bottom. All the city officials and staff were basically Nazis, so... He and uh, the other officers and enlisted guys in charge of the occupation found um, a workaround. They hired contractors to help them provide essential services to the city, and maybe not so secretly, but secretly, you know. they Those contractors rehired the Nazis to do the same city jobs they did before, but you know, 
under contract to the contractors, not the U.S. Army. Ta-da! Problem solved, right? The Army didn't hire Nazis. And uh, everything gets done. If we could just make them all trustworthy and not Nazis, everything would be solved, bro. But like, what the fuck, right? Horn thought that all of this was a shitty excuse for Thompson to hide in a bar, drinking the morning away. But he only had 20 days left to find a treasure. And uh, Thompson had the rest of his life to be a fucking idiot. He got Thompson to agree to meet him the next morning in the bunker. When the appointed time arrived, Thompson had lived up to his word. Two machine-gun-laden guards were at the bunker entrance, and they were expecting him. Horn introduced himself, and one of the guards uh, went inside to get the captain. Walter Horn wasted no time beginning his investigation of the facility, first noting that it wasn't originally a bunker, but a beer cellar. Such a place under a castle was actually kind of unexceptional as nearly every family in old Nuremberg had its own beer cellar. And Nuremberg's wealthier citizens had extensive cellars, not only for storing beer, but also for brewing hops. There were times in Nuremberg's history when the law required all property owners to keep such facilities. Why, you might be asking. Uh, well, this is um, its kind of difficult to say without sounding, you know, uh, a little racist or... Uh xenophobic or something, but, I mean, all right, here it goes. Um, it's because Germans are degenerate drunks. I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, it's true. It's, there have been multiple studies that have confirmed it, some being from the earliest days that such studies could, could be performed uh, accurately. A famous one that was done in 1923 by Dr. Franz Jung, a psychology adjunct fellow at uh, Abluch... <laughs> Goodness, uh, Unglaublich um, Alfalschet Polytechnic in Stuttgart, Germany. His study measured the relative inebriated states in the general population of Germany and surrounding areas and its effect over extended periods of time. It involved 13,406 residents of the area and ran for a period of about 12 years. The subjects were tested every month for the duration of the study, and it was found that all subjects were drunk Roughly 83% of the time. All of them. Yeah. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, he believed the, the cause of such widespread constant inebriation was the effect of over half a millennium of beer pervading the culture. It's wild to think that at any one time, over 80% of the entire population of Germany is shit-faced. To tell you the truth, if I hadn't completely made all that up, I'd be shocked. Shocked, I tell you. No, of course not. Germany isn't drunk all the time. That's silly. Uh, no, the the beer they uh, the beer was brewed um, with antibacterial hops, so so it was not as easily contaminated as the water supply uh, in Nuremberg. You know, with the life threatening germs that cause illness and death. You know, things like that. It was really helpful when the city was fending off invaders because its entire population, man and beast, uh, could subsist on beer, which is pretty fucking neat. And weird. But, I mean, it's also probably not great for the general intelligence of the uh, population. You know what I'm saying? There's no study to back that up. But, I mean, 
there had to be a lot of unchecked fetal alcohol syndrome at varying degrees. I mean, you know, right? Just the nature of alcohol, you know. Uh, just from a medical perspective, how could there not be? I'm probably way off, but still. Until I seriously procrastinate enough to deep dive into it, I'm uh, my half-ass logic is the path I'm choosing to take. Thompson's guest or something. The captain attempted to hurry Walter through his investigation of the bunker, but he was having none of it. He inspected each room of the complex carefully, noting its contents and general structure. It was... Um, Reinforced. The, the structure was reinforced throughout and had a sophisticated ventilation and housing system. So why was it not guarded on the inside when it was taken by Peterson and his men? Where had the guards gone? Did they take the missing crown jewels? Thompson didn't know or wouldn't say. He just knew that the place had been closely guarded. Then it was time to inspect the actual storage units that held all the goodies. There were five units in all, each with its own locked eight-foot-tall steel door. Horn waited for Thompson to unlock them, but instead was introduced to a small man in his 50s or 60s. He figured he was Thompson's guest, here to, you know, help jumpstart the reclamation process. But, uh, but no. No, this guy, whose name was Albert Drakehorn, had the fucking keys to the doors. So not only did Thompson not possess the keys to a pretty important facility holding some extremely important shit... But he had allowed them to be kept by what was likely a former Nazi. What do you think? Uh, was that a pretty big-ass breach of security? Walter thought so. But again, he said nothing and proceeded with the investigation. Thompson continued to appear annoyed with what he felt was a waste of time. So much interfering in his day drinking. Horn got the same vibe from Drakehorn, the German fella. The Nazi with the keys to the vault. Anyway, regardless... Walter pressed on, being meticulous as fuck, because fuck the fucking Nazi prick and his dude bro brofessor enabler. Due diligence and shit, goddammit. Thoroughly, he checked the storage, room after room, storage room after storage room, filled with valuable artwork and antiquities. Checked all that shit. He also inspected the empty crates where the crown jewels once were. Horn opened and examined the contents of each crate. Inside the largest crates, in glass cases, were the embroidered silk coronation mantle, imperial undergarments, royal slippers, gloves, stockings, and investments. I wanted—I kept wanting to say investments. But no, it was just vestments. Um, all five of the missing treasures had been part of the larger collection that was moved into the vault. The empty crates had been pried apart, their tops left lying on the floor. It was... Easy to deduce that the thief or thieves must have been in a hurry. As the crown, orb, and scepter were relatively small, they uh, they could have been carted off pretty quickly. His inspection, more or less complete. Uh, Horn asked Captain Thompson how he gained access to the vault. Oh, uh, this little dude, Drakehorn, obviously. Uh, I was all busy taking care of Nuremberg shit, bro. And I figured all the hidden shit would probably just stay hidden till I got around to it. You know what I'm saying? And by the time I did, military intelligence had already figured, you know, the mayor, the uh, a guy named Willie Liebel, Liebel, I don't know, and uh, Defense Minister Carl Holtz uh, probably had the keys and combos and stuff. But Liebel, you know, <laughs> had offed himself with a huge caliber shot to the dome, <laughs> braining his ass all over his office. The other guy... Uh, Holes? He was shot by some fucking body. I don't know. But, uh, his Nazi ass is dead, too. 
That was a very uh, vivid and twisted description, Captain. Suck my dick, Lieutenant. Sorry, uh, I was paraphrasing. But, I mean, that's kind of what happened. Regardless, <clears throat> Thompson and friends uh, looked everywhere for the keys and any paperwork associated with it. Well, it turns out they didn't have to go very far. Drakehorn was the personal secretary to the self-murdered Nazi mayor. So, uh, yeah, Drakehorn was absolutely a Nazi. Drakehorn provided you with the keys and the combination? Horn asked. Thompson explained that Drakehorn said Liebel and Holtz had passed the keys and the lock combination to three trusted members of the city council. Two of those men would come forward with the keys and combo, one Heinz Schmeisner and Dr. Konrad Fries. Uh, the third guy was probably dead. But it didn't matter because Liebel had also trusted Drakehorn with the keys and combo. So really, like, four guys had the keys and combination to the place? There were so many Nazi assholes with access to the fucking historical treasure shit. It... Mm. The excuse Schmiesner and Fries gave for not coming forward sooner... Um, they were afraid they were going to get prosecuted. Uh, Drakehorn acted as their go-between. Walter marveled at the deals these motherfuckers had cut for the sake of expediency. They would do a lot of the work Thompson and his crew were supposed to do in exchange for leniency for shit like, oops, keeping the vault secret, and, you know, other stuff. Did Drakehorn tell you who may have removed the jewels? Walter asked. Uh, Thompson told him that Drakehorn and the dead bastards were responsible for the rumors that the Nazi high command swooped in and removed the stuff before the U.S. forces arrived. The only people who knew what the whole truth might be were, you know, of course, the dead Nazi pricks. Horn continued to investigate the vault and steadily grew more pissed at Thompson. At one point, Thompson, the dumb motherfucker, lit up a cigarette in a storage room filled with historical artifacts. Then, then... Another time, he just carelessly uh, rooted through a crate containing the coronation garments, uh, items he disregarded as a dead king's cape, underwear, and booties. The dickhead just continually demonstrated that he couldn't be bothered to give a shit. He didn't understand why Nazis would want any of this old shit anyway. While digging through a crate that arguably contained the most valuable items and one containing the Holy Lance... Thompson lifted it off its velvet pillow and pointed it at Horn like it was a bayonet. And he said, it can't be real, can it? What a dickhole. Later that night, after Thompson and Horn had dinner together, Horn guided Thompson through 2,000 years of Christian mysticism and Germanic superstition. His impromptu lecture might not have improved relations between them or helped them find the missing jewels because that was starting to seem pretty unachievable at that time. Um, Given the shitty state of Nuremberg, uh, it all seemed kind of like a lost cause. Instead, Horn felt that an academic obligation to try and get this fucking idiot to understand why Hitler, like Napoleon before him, coveted the Holy Roman Empire treasures in the first place. I won't subject you to 2,000 years of Christian mysticism and whatnot, but I will say that during, during his talk, uh, Horn hit upon the crux of why Nazis wanted all of it. He said... The question isn't whether or not the Longinus Lance in the Nazi bunker is the one that actually pierced Jesus. The point is that generations of German Christians venerated it as the genuine article, as many still do today. 
Hitler wanted the Nazi regime to have a physical link to Germany's lauded history via possession of the historical items themselves. But it would also give credence to, you know, the Nazi cause, too. Hitler understood that symbols, physical or otherwise, had power. Even he went so far as to build a replica of the wooden shrine that housed the treasures during medieval times. At the first of Nuremberg's Nazi party rallies held in 1933, the reproduction shrine was duly installed in the market square, just as the real artifact would have appeared centuries earlier. This shrine, though, was left empty, as a not-so-subtle means of conveying that Nuremberg had been robbed of its cultural and spiritual inheritance. Symbols can have a powerful influence on people. They can also be used to manipulate them as well. This made finding the crown jewels all the more important, as they were of a special significance to Hitler himself, and could be used to stoke another Nazi movement into being. Despite losing confidence in finding the relics, Horn moved forward with his investigation, choosing to begin interrogations. He focused first on those he believed to have more information on the movement of the jewels. However, 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 he needed to proceed in the right way. Far better to begin from a position of familiarity with the details of the bunker itself, its daily operation, and to create a chronology of events to pinpoint the date that the crown jewels had been removed from the vault, then, you know, instead of not, you know. Then he would interrogate Dracorn Fries and Schmeisner. Schmeisner? S-C-H-M-E-I-S-S-N-E-R. Schmeisner? I, I, I keep seeing it different ways. Schmeisner. Lining up potential informants would be a challenge. The hurdle, he imagined, would be persuading Thompson to support his plan. Thompson was apprehensive about rocking the boat of his Nazi help. So when asking to conduct a series of interviews, Horn told Thompson that it was only to confirm, as the captain himself had said, that Nazis themselves had removed the treasures before the U.S. Army invaded the city. He told him that he would tie up a few loose ends and be on his way back to Frankfurt with a report substantiating the rumors the captain had first brought to Major Hammond's attention. Way to bullshit an idiot, Walter Horn. I like it. Thompson yielded to Horn's request uh, without much wrangling, you know. Maybe Horn's lecture on the history and importance of the items involved brought him around, but, uh, but more than likely, Thompson just wanted Horn to get the fuck out of his way. He wanted to be in the bar before 9 a.m., damn it! He'll never become a career alcoholic if he doesn't put the hours in. Thompson agreed to let the lieutenant spend a few days interviewing low-level bunker personnel and offered to give those that cooperated better work assignments if they helped, uh, if they helped Horn out. He even offered uh, Walter the use of his office at the occupation headquarters. No one Walter spoke to on his first day of interviews claimed any knowledge of the disappearance of the crown jewels, despite Horn slapping the table and repeatedly yelling the questions inches from their face. I'm kidding. Nearly everyone did, however, confirm the identification of Mayor Leibniz's choices to run the Blacksmith Alley facility. Interesting. Julius Linkes, L-I-N-C-K-E, yeah, is his last name. Julius Links. Julius Lynx, um, his name appeared on the blueprints provided to the contractors that retrofitted and upgraded the beer cellar to a vault. Heinz Schmeisner, Schmeisner's office did the legal work. Conrad Fries wrote money orders and signed off on requisitions, and Albert Drakehorn handled routine business-related matters. 
Well, well, well. Very interesting. The name Horn expected to hear, Heinrich Himmler, didn't initially arise in connection with the bunker. A quick overview, a quickly quick, quick overview of uh, who Heinrich Himmler was. Uh, He was born October 7th, 1900. Heinrich Himmler was the uh, Reich leader, or Reichsführer, of the dreaded SS um, of the Nazi party from 1929 to 1945. Himmler presided over a vast ideological and bureaucratic empire that defined him for many, both inside and outside the Third Reich, as the second most powerful man after Adolf Hitler uh, in Germany during World War II. Given overall responsibility of the security of the Nazi empire, Himmler was the key and senior Nazi uh, responsible for conceiving and overseeing implementation of the, quote, final solution, unquote, the plan to murder all of the Jews of Europe. So he's an absolute vile piece of shit. Himmler and Hitler were also fascinated with the occult. Hitler probably for the symbolism we talked about earlier, and Himmler because he was a fucking nutball idiot who probably literally believed in magic powers. They saw Nuremberg as the spiritual and symbolic center of the Nazi party. Uh, Hitler also planned to have himself a crown there as a latter-day Holy Roman Emperor at the war's end. Walter Horn figured, at the very least... Himmler would have been the one to order the removal of the crown jewels from the blacksmith's alley vault, or at least have drawn up a plan to be executed should the Nazis be defeated. Which, of course, they motherfucking were. Yeah! Um, Here's an interesting fun fact I learned about while researching this episode. This is taken from a Salon article I used uh, for some of the Himmler stuff. Join me for a little loosely related side learning for a second. This is from the article. Quote, Occult fascination with religious relics and their supposed supernatural properties began shortly after the establishment of Christianity. The purported tomb of St. Peter, located in an ancient Roman necropolis, hidden directly beneath the high altar of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, was initially found to be empty. And the Vatican archaeologist Monsignor Ludwig Kaz, who found it, in 1939, feared that he had arrived too late, that early Christian relic hunters had stripped away Peter's bones and their sacred value, and the supposed power of the remnants of saints to work miracles and heal the sick. But investigation led to an astonishing discovery. The tomb had been built expressly to trick relic hunters. The bones were actually entombed in a hollow, in one of the four walls of the tomb, not in the cavity of the tomb itself. This demonstrates an awareness that the bones of the saints would be sought, traded, and sometimes stolen by the faithful, even within a few years of Christianity's foundation. Unquote. End quote. You know. That's some inconspicuous Indiana Jones type shit right there. However, this only goes to show that Christians can't be trusted to bury somebody without playing hide-and-seek with their bodies. What the hell, Christians? Can't you just post armed guards for centuries like you did for the Holy Grail? Just make the guards live forever so they can tell grave robbers to, you know, fuck off. Or, or you know, should it be necessary, fight them with swords. Think, Christians, think! Wait. The, wait, that Indiana Jones movie was real, right? Right? 
Hmm. An investigation for another time. Moving on. So, low-level people involved with the bunker didn't mention Himmler. In fact, no one suggested that there was any mystical or arcane reason for the Blacksmith Alley. Blacksmith's Alley Bunker. They viewed it as a city-owned and city-run facility, albeit secret, under the direct supervision of Lord Mayor Liebel. I keep saying it like that, but I do. Renovation of the former beer cellar took place in great secrecy over a six-month period, beginning in September of 1939. This date was confirmed by a contractor who delivered concrete and steel to the site, and a guy who requisitioned building materials from supplies earmarked for the Nazi Party rally grounds. Horn learned that the bunker was expanded from three units to seven, suggesting it was not initially intended to store the vast collection of city valuables that were ultimately placed in it. The transfer of the Holy Roman Empire treasures from the Cohen Bank to the bunker took place on February 23, 1940, a year and a half after their arrival in Germany. The dates given by staff workers tallied with the uh, card catalog records could be positively correlated to the bombing raids that had become a daily fact of life in Nuremberg. The dates and consequences of the raids were deeply embedded in the consciousness of everyone he interviewed. Repairs were made to the blacksmith's alley vault after one of those raids, which warranted a visit from Himmler himself. But beyond that, the informants Horn interviewed could care less about what was in the vault. Instead, (laughs) get this, they wanted to talk about all the fucking bombing. Because, come on, what's more interesting? There's some fucking hole in the ground with doors, uh, you know, that, that are loaded with boxes of shit you can't see, or getting fucking bombed. It's like all they wanted to talk about, damn it. I mean, I mean, I, I get it. I mean, duh, right? If your whole town getting bombed into piles of garbage and wood chips didn't become a noteworthy event for people living there, you would think that maybe there was something severely fucking wrong with the damn people, right? Hmm. Do you remember that ice cream parlor that used to be over there? Remember that? Oh, you mean where the smoldering pile of broken bricks, glass, and wood are? Yeah. Oh, they had the best cherry chocolate chip, remember? I wonder what happened to it. Um, possibly. Um, hmm. The continuous bombing that leveled most of the town, destroying our homes, community, and lives. That's happened. Remember? The last one was yesterday. Are you serious? Right, right. You know, now that you mention it, earlier today I was thinking, why am I scavenging for food amongst so much debris and crying people? The bombing. Duh. Oh, goodness. I tell you, I'd lose my mind if it wasn't for the constant debilitating fear of dying. So Horn moved on to the more contentious people on his list. The ones that would start to garner a little friction from Captain Thompson. Albert Drakehorn topped the list of people to be interviewed the next day. The threat of losing his position... The threat of losing his position on Thompson's historic renovation committee was all the encouragement necessary to bring him in, uh, hat in hand, into Thompson's office. He was an articulate and crafty bureaucrat who chose his words with care. Mayor Liebel was a good and honorable man. A more kind and dedicated civil servant didn't exist in Nuremberg or anywhere else in Germany, Drakehorn declared. Horn took notes of what he said. He'd already expected Drake Horn to defend his former employer, but didn't expect him to kiss this much ass. 
The bunker was entirely Dr. Liebel's idea, he said. The city's treasures had to be protected, whatever the cost. Whatever the sacrifice. He ordered the facility built despite the risk of infuriating the, the Nazi high command in Berlin. He then went on to explain that with the help of Julius Link, Linke, Linke, who directed the city planning office, Liebel skirted the letter of the law by declaring the vault to be a city-operated storage site. So thanks to Liebel and Schmeisner's, Schmeisner's adroit interpretation of the legal provisions, they got shit done. Do you mean to tell me that Heinrich Himmler was unaware that Liebel had built the Blacksmith's Alley facility to house the crown jewels? Horn asked. Drakehorn didn't answer his question directly. He would only say that the treasures belonged to Nuremberg and not the Nazi government. As city property, the mayor was entirely within his legal right to move them from one city-owned facility to another. The only concession Liebel made was to extend to Himmler the same courtesies he offered some ranking Nazi visitors. Drakehorn also confirmed that Linke, Schmeisner, Schmeisner and Fries were the principal players in the bunker's construction and maintenance. Liebel trusted them implicitly which was why he had given them the keys to the vault before doing the world a favor and blowing his stupid Nazi head off. If Drakehorn was to be believed, Mayor Liebel, with or without Himmler's help and knowledge, had built the facility in secret without the Nazis' permission. Only after it was up and running did they allow the city to install defenses, and the artifacts and treasures were moved to the vault. Horn looked Drakehorn squarely in the eyes, willing him to reveal the truth. Did Heinrich Himmler or the Liebel to remove the missing crown jewels? Drakehorn leaned back in his chair, saying nothing. Horn paused to let the question sink in before following it with another. Have you ever seen an American dollar, Drakehorn? Drakehorn was puzzled. Excuse me, I don't understand. Like a lightning bolt, Private Dollar erupted from the shadows, quickly delivering a blow to Drakehorn's eye. Stunned, he screamed and fell out of his chair. Dollar was on him in a flash, going to work on Drakehorn's face, battering him repeatedly. All the while, Lieutenant Horn screamed, Where are the jewels? Where are the jewels? All right, you know that's not right. So, um, no, he asked him to, he asked him point blank about Himmler ordering Liebel to remove the jewels. Uh, but no private dollar, unfortunately. How awesome would it have been, though, right? Fucking. Drakehorn said only that Liebel was a patriot who had given his life to protect Germany's greatest treasure. The treasure of virginity. You see, there comes a time in every country's life when, oh boy, this is gonna, it's gonna be harder than I thought. Uh, <laughs> uh it's gonna get a little awkward. Okay, so, uh, so, uh. A mother bird has a nest full of eggs, right? One day, she feels tired and uh, doesn't want to fly out to find food. She sees that flowers are blooming in her yard. She goes to the flowers and pecks at them until, the, uh, until they drop pollen on her head. Yeah, I don't... What am I talking about? Sorry. Um, I saw Protect Germany's Greatest Treasure and uh, I ran with the birds and the bees. I know. I know. More than anybody. Believe me. I, uh... Back to Walter and his Nazi... Ah, uh, back to uh, Walter and his hunt for Nazi treasure. Continuing his interview with Drakehorn, he got him to admit that Liebel uh, received a phone call from Berlin a month or so after the invasion. Sometime in February, 
February or early March. From Himmler, Horn asked. Drakehorn confirmed the call had indeed come from the Reichsführer. Himmler had ordered the most valuable items removed for safekeeping. Who did that Nazi shit-eating fuckstick entrust the responsibility of removing the jewels? Schmeisner, Linker, and Fries. The worst comedy trio of all time, of course. I'm paraphrasing, but you get it. The story fit the basic facts as far as Horn was concerned. Horn thanked Drakehorn for coming to see him. This will be all for now, he said. Your help is most appreciated. Horn would learn that Thompson had been told about this and about copper containers being made and delivered to the bunker by SS officers. The captain had dismissed them as rumors and speculation. Thompson said the people that Horn had talked to were just trying not to be charged with war crimes in the upcoming tribunals. You can't trust a Nazi, bro, except when they're doing your job for you. Walter admitted that while that might be true, he was convinced that he could pressure Schmeisner, Schmeisner, and Freeze into revealing what they knew. Further, he wasn't going to leave the city until he had interrogated them. The captain's response was brief and to the point. Fuck no, bro! I'm paraphrasing, of course. Under no circumstances was Walter to contact Schmeisner, Schmeisner and Freeze. They, civilians, couldn't be held accountable for clerical and other services they may or may not have provided to the city's former Nazi administration. If Walter wanted to pursue the matter, he should draft a letter with the questions he wished to ask them, then kindly shove that letter up his own fucking ass. Hard. No. No, Thompson said he should write a letter to the new incoming military governor, Colonel Andrews, then shove it up his ass. Hard. Okay, I'm, I'm moving on. No, uh, Horn wasn't about to waste what little time he had left on Thompson's ass-shoving exercises. <laughs> Bureaucratic horse shit. No. No letters, no questions to Colonel Andrews incoming. None of that shit. He was willing to put in a call to Major Hammond or General Dwight D. fucking Eisenhower himself to get this shit straightened out. Needless to say, the exchange between Walter Horn and the Captain Dubro Thompson got a little heated. I'm here to do my job, Horn said, and I intend to do it whether you like it or not. Thompson declared that he too had a job to do and wouldn't stand by while Horn harassed members of the city's civilian administration that were doing his job for him. So super pissed, he left the room. He did catch up with Horn later to tell him that he wasn't acceding to the interrogation. Then he told him that the two former councilmen weren't just on the occupation payroll. Payroll, They were at the very top of the administration's civilian chain of command. There would be hell to pay if their work were interrupted. They were helping with renovations to the buildings to be used in the upcoming war crimes trials to prosecute the shitbag Nazis. Even more pressure bullshit piled on. The goddamn Nuremberg trials were going to start soon. So much pressure! Basically at this point, Thompson wanted Walter Horn to wrap it up, but Horn still wasn't having it. Then Thompson agreed to an interview with Schmeisner and Freeze, but only if he were present. Horn agreed, but he wasn't going to let Thompson take charge of the investigation. He was a master interrogator, goddammit. The best. You can't be any geek off the street, if you know what I mean. You gotta be handy with this. Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. The interview was conducted at the Palace of Justice. Batman and Aquaman would be in attendance. Superman and Green Lantern, however, had a more pressing engagement with the fucking Riddler. Yeah, imagine that. 
His query-laden, swarmy ass had cut out of Gotham and was pulling a caper in Metropolis. A caper! The nerve of the motherfucker. Naturally, Batman was anxious about the news. But... But he was on the Nazi interrogation auditing committee. And he was the next in rotation. So, I mean, he was obligated. Still, the Riddler was his guy, damn it! He was betrayed by the catechizing, green-suited prick. Why was he choosing Metropolis over Gotham? What had he, as the Riddler's arch-nemesis, done wrong? Was he trying to send Batman a message? He didn't want to put the Nazis ahead of their relationship. It wasn't like that. He just had other obligations, and the fucking Riddler should respect that. But to go off to a whole other city, protected by a different superhero, to pull a caper? It just hurt. Still, if he has to sit in a room and sulk, at least it was to watch a Nazi get questioned. And hell, if shit got out of hand, maybe engage in one of his favorite pastimes, police-style brutality on some fucking Nazis. He told me he doesn't even like Metropolis, Batman blurted out loud. Green Lantern, Walter Horn, Captain Thompson, Schmeisner, and Freeze looked at him with concern. Batman waved them off and motioned for them to continue. An awkward quiet settled over the room as Walter Horn turned towards you, the listener, and said, What the fuck is going on right now? <clears throat> Not even going to say anything. The interview without Batman and Green Lantern was conducted in a room at the Palace of Justice. Thompson made the introductions. Horn would later say the interview without Batman and Green Lantern was conducted in a room at the Palace of Justice. Thompson made his introductions. Horn would later say he was thinking something akin to, uh, does this motherfucker think he's running shit now? Um, but that's, you know, paraphrasing what he was thinking. But he did jump in and say, um, this is about the missing crown jewels. I want to know what you did with them. I really like Horn. He did not fuck around. <laughs> Schmeisner, speaking in perfect English, said that the lieutenant must be referring to the art bunker. Yes, Horn responded, Himmler's bunker, the one you and Julius Linke built and outfitted. Then, directing his attention to Freeze, Horn continued, And you administered on the behalf of the Nazis. The two men looked to Thompson as if to wait for an explanation. Thompson made some remark about it not technically being an established Nazi facility. It was uh, used to store city art treasures. However, Walter wasn't about to let Thompson or the councilman relax. I believe that you and Dr. Fries were present on the day that Himmler's couriers removed five treasures from the collection of crown jewels stored in the vault. Thompson jumped in trying to diffuse the hard-ass tone Horn was leveling at the men. I mean exactly what I said. The two of you took possession of four reinforced copper containers in which you placed the missing crown jewels. You then delivered them to Himmler's men. Simultaneous spit takes all around. Schmiesner denied ever touching anything. Horn leaned on him. Mayor Liebel asked you to open the vault. You took the treasures and turned them over to the SS. Schmeisner's face was hard and cold. Freeze too had become tense. Shit was getting real. Are you accusing us of stealing from the vault? Schmeisner retorted. 
Horn let the question hang in the air a moment before he spoke. Gentlemen, I believe we may have gotten off on the wrong foot here. I believe I mean you no disrespect or to harry you in any way. You appear angry. Stone-faced might even be a better word, but this is not my intention. Schmeisner's lips had stiffened. Freeze, more tense than ever. Horn continued. My only concern is for the well-being of a treasure stolen by the Nazis, gentlemen. I feel that I should frame my questions differently for the benefit of this investigation and the missing items. He stood up and leaned over the table. Gentlemen, might I have the truth if I were to give you one American dollar? The men looked confused. An instant later, the window in the wall beside them exploded as Private Horn swings into the room. Everyone but Horn is beside themselves with surprise. Dollar grabs Schmiesner by the collar with his left and decks him out cold with his right. Freeze doesn't know what to do and pisses himself as Dollar pivots and spin kicks him near his left temple. Thompson collapses by the wall, not knowing what's going on. All the while, Horn has been screaming at the top of his lungs, Where are the jewels? Where are the jewels? Where are the jewels? Okay, I, I, can't, I can't resist. I'm sorry. Uh, seriously, if there, if any of that were real, <laughs> oh my God, they would have been asked to star in their own action movie about this investigation. For real. Uh, no, Thompson tried to intervene again, but Horn refused to be silenced. I want to know who took the crown jewels and why you and your colleague, Dr. Freeze, didn't come forward and report what you knew when the vault was first opened for inspection. At this point, Thompson gave up trying to reel in Horn. Uh, I mean, when you're in the path of, of a Walter Horn bullet train and there are Nazi cows on the tracks, I mean, what are you going to do? You let that fucking train blow those cows apart, right? Just plow them into pieces. They had a chance to move, but now getting a train run on them by Walter Horn? Okay, okay, that sounded better in my head. That metaphor got away. Uh, huh. Schmeisner. Schmeisner? adopted a less defensive tone. He told Walter Bullet Train Horn that he and Dr. Freeze had nothing to hide, and no one before now had asked them what their contributions were to the art bunker. They, too, wanted the crown jewels, or whatever, returned to their rightful owners. You were in the bunker on the day the crown jewels were removed? Schmiesner confirmed it. They were... They were there after the outside doors were camouflaged, after all the repairs, uh, around late March or early April. Schmiesner and Fries told him about meeting the mayor and SS officer and two privates, who were a driver and an armed guard. They parked a car by the loading dock. Everyone knew the Americans would be arriving soon, Schmeisner uh, told them. Then Fries spoke about Liebel and the SS officer carrying heavy metal containers into the bunker. He and Schmiesner were told to unlock the vault. The mayor and the officer went inside, and a few minutes later they came out with the containers. Finally, they stepped outside. The privates took the metal boxes, of which there were four, too long and too short, and they loaded everything into their car. After that, they were dismissed. They suspected the boxes were for the crown jewels. You are testifying to that? You are willing to put this into writing? Both councilmen said they would indeed. Thompson looked relieved. Like, this was all a done deal. Horn wasn't finished yet. 
What is the officer's name? His name? Freeze seemed surprised that Horn should ask. How should I know? You mean to say you didn't know the name of the man to whom you delivered the crown jewels of the Holy Roman Empire? Liebel knew him, Schmiesner said quickly. Else we wouldn't have done it. What was his rank? Schmiesner looked to Freeze. A major, perhaps? I don't think it was a lieutenant colonel or a colonel. No, certainly not a colonel, Freeze agreed. He must have been a major. What branch of service? Beyond being in the SS, they didn't seem to know. Horn asked them about details of his uniform, the make, the model of the car, the license number. They gave him nothing concrete and blamed it on it being dark due to the early hour. Where were they going? Horn asked. Schmiesner assumed they were leaving Nuremberg. Freeze suggested they might have left on a plane via the local airport. Horn felt that if he just got a little more, he could move the investigation on to the next step. Horn resisted the impulse to continue the interrogation, instead saying that he would make up a statement for both of them to sign. Then Horn decided to focus on Himmler and where he could have taken the treasure outside of the city. So he decided to pay a visit to Wevelsberg Castle, which had been commandeered by Himmler. Uh, this next bit is for Patreon members only. To get the extended version of the episode, hit up the Patreon link in the description. <sighs> Editing. I almost must stay out of the water. I don't know if I can feed her. I had some really. And I ain't slimy. I'm going to get her. He learned a lot about Himmler's motivations while there but couldn't find a definitive connection to an order of movement for the uh, jewels. Regardless, he was put onto the uh, trail of someone who may have, one Josef Spatzel, Himmler's paymaster. As an SS piece of shit, Spatzel had a special knack for disguising the origins of uh, looted assets. He also helped organize the Nazi counterfeiting of British pounds and stuff. To, and he also set up hiding places for stolen artistic and historical pieces and took to uh, hiding Nazi gold. When it became abundantly clear, the Nazi Reich was, quote, not going to make the winning goal in the great sporting of world warring. That's another uh, quote from Winston Churchill that is... Probably, I mean, it, it, maybe not. Under instructions from his senior officer SS, Obergruppenführer Ernst Kaltenbrunner, fucking names, Spatzel entered the new Reichsbank building in Berlin on April 22nd, 1945, and removing at gunpoint jewels, securities, and the last remaining foreign exchange assets held in the vault, valued together at 23 million gold marks. The foreign currency was later valued at approximately $9.1 million. In view of the rapidly advancing U.S. soldiers, Spatzler was obligated to discreetly hide all the loot. He gave orders and supervised the burial of much treasure along the road between Toxenbach and the Rauris. Rauris? R-A-U-R-I-S. Rauris? So between the road Tockenberg and to Rauris uh, in the Bavarian Alps, he helped bury some shit. He supervised the burial of stuff. Then, 
The fuckface tried hiding stolen Nazi gold and money and other valuables throughout the land for later retrieval by uh, Nazis and or himself, but most likely himself. So when the curtain came down on Hitler's hate-a-palooza, Spatzel scrambled for a way out of accountability and into the loving arms of getting away with horrific crimes against humanity. He tried bribing his way out of the country and was caught. At the war's end on the 8th of May, 1945, Spatzel changed into an ordinary Wehrmacht uh, uniform and joined a group of retreating soldiers surrendering to SS troops. Spatzel gave his name and rank as Sergeant Au. Uh, spelled A-U-E, as a fucking pussy would do. However, his real identity was soon revealed, and after interrogation, he was persuaded to show the American Counterintelligence Corps, or CIC officers, the location of the buried treasures. Following their interrogation, the CIC described Spatzel as a fanatical Nazi and suspected the former SS officer of having secreted some of the cash to another location, but were unable to prove anything. He was also attached to a rumor that the crown jewels had been sunk in Lake Zell am See in Austria, a preferred destination for dedicated Nazis on the run. Spatzel even claimed to have first-hand information regarding the concealment of the crown jewels. Horn tried to wrangle an interview with him, but he uh, was denied, as Spatzel was deemed too important in other investigations. It's likely those other investigations were informing on other Nazis and helping to find some of that sweet, sweet cheddar for the Allied cause instead. Know what I'm saying? Regardless, from information given by Spatzel, it appeared the crown jewels may have been sunken in Lake Zell, MC, to be retrieved later. It all seemed to line up. Maybe. But Horn wasn't totally convinced. So, in order to wrap up the whole matter once and for all, he devised a plan. I've got an idea, he told a friend. I'm going to frighten the two Nuremberg councilmen into coming clean. Since he couldn't get an interview with Spatzel, he arranged for him to be brought to Frankfurt instead. The plan relied on stealth, a flair for the dramatic, and the element of surprise. First, Horn had to go to Nuremberg and talk to Thompson again. Upon arrival, he found him not drinking his way to an early afternoon hangover, but was instead outside doing some goddamn work in town. Horn chatted him up and, you know, kind of buttered him up in a flattering way, you know. Then he laid his request on him. I would like you to arrest Schmeisner and Fries. It took Thompson a minute to see that he was serious. Horn wanted them arrested that morning. Predictably, Thompson gave him a robust, Hell no, bro! or something akin to that. The point is to scare them into believing army intelligence knows more than they do, and that the councilman helped in the conspiracy to hide the jewels. And since Himmler and Liebel are dead, Allied Command intends to pin the rap on them entirely. I was paraphrasing there, but yeah, Thompson hemmed and hawed, but Horn eventually got his way. He wanted them put in cells overnight, then, in the morning, he split them up, taking Fries to Frankfurt and leaving Schmeisner behind in Nuremberg. Why did he want Fries? Because in the bunker, and previous in the interrogations, he did the least talking. Horn figured he'd be the one to crack if he was leaned on. Gangsta. The plan was to sit Fries in an interrogation room and have Spatzel march past by guards in full view of Freeze, 
Given the pressure Horn was making Freeze believe that he was under, a few scenarios could possibly play out. Freeze would identify Spatzel as the officer they turned the jewels over to. Or two, uh, Freeze wouldn't know who he was. And then he would have to repeat the whole setup again using Schmeisner, Schmeisner instead. Then, Horn would work with whatever info remained and close the investigation. Freeze was taken to an interrogation room by another interrogator and was made to believe that he was being booked on general conspiracy to overthrow the Allied occupation. This got Freeze scared as fuck. Then Horn came in to follow up about the jewels. After some preliminary questioning, Horn said, You were just doing what you were told. It's understandable given the circumstances. Almost anyone could have been taken in by the promises of a resurgence of the Reich. However, just then there was a whooshing sound that startled Horn. It was a garrot, a handheld ligature of chain used to strangle a person. It had been slipped around Freeze's neck from behind. He began to choke, his handcuffed hands reflexively reaching for his throat. Horn didn't understand what's happening. Freeze struggled and grew more frantic. His mouth was open as he gaped for air. From behind him, Private Dollar came into view. He grit his teeth in the struggle to hold the garrot in place. Horn looked at him in shock and asked, What the hell are you doing, Dollar? This isn't the bit. Dollar's eyes narrowed and looked at Horn with misunderstanding, while Freeze was still choking and was starting to flail about in his chair. You're not supposed to just choke him to death, and you you didn't even wait for the line. I'm supposed to say something like, Freeze, I think an American dollar might speed this along, or something like that. I usually work it out right before. But but then I say that and shout, Where are the jewels? Where are the jewels? You, you, a lot, you know, but you, you still, you didn't even wait. Plus, plus, it's always a beating dollar, not choking to death. Who told you to choke him? I know I didn't. This is not the bit, Dollar. Ugh, this is not the bit. You ruined it. We are going to have a long talk about this afterward. We have to. This is, this is clearly out of line. Free's eyes bulged and he stopped struggling and his body went limp. Oh, great. Now he's dead. Perfect, Dollar. Perfect. Damn it. Dollar looked very sad and slipped the ligature from around his neck. Shoulders slumped, he kind of slunk back to the shadows. Um, no, of course, that's not what happened. And unfortunately, uh, I have to leave it there. I can't tell you what happens because all is revealed during this interrogation. The, where the jewels are and who did it and everything. And I can't do that. I cannot do that. Sorry. It's the nature of the beast. I can't give you the whole book. Um, you should pick it up though. Um, I'll have a link uh, via my Amazon thing, um, associate, whatever, fucking whatever, my Amazon link. So if you buy it through that link, I'll get a, a little bit of money from Amazon for it, which will help with this podcast. So you should definitely pick it up. It, the book is actually better than I gave it credit for. And I skimmed over so much, so much stuff. There's a lot more in it than, than what I've there's the twist that happens in, in the, this last interrogation thing. And then there's another twist after that. And then there's like a run on a Russian held border. And then there's an escape and there's this fucking horns families in there and just so much shit, so much. Um, so I, I thought, Oh, I would stick to the main thrust of the book, you know, but really 
It's so much stuff, and it is it is really good. It's a lot better than I, I gave it credit for. Um, it, it, this one was really hard. There was there was a lot of detail that I just could not give. And uh, anyway, so get get the damn book. Um, use the Amazon link in the description. So it, it helps the uh, podcast. So uh, it's pretty good. Uh, the book. So get it. Regardless, I'm so sorry. Uh, my apologies if you feel frustrated and feel some kind of way about it. You can message me but and and t- tell me all about it. Hit me up on Twitter and be mad. Be mad. Be angry. It's fine. I understand. But it's like Winston Churchill said, you know, uh, quote, if you can't stick the landing, at least be drunk enough to enjoy the fall. Unquote. Which is, which is something he definitely for sure said. I think. Probably not. Thank you for listening to Elton Reads a Book a Week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to contribute to the podcast, you can do that through the Patreon page. And you can buy the book through the Amazon link, the associate Amazon whatever link. Uh, If you buy it through there, I get a little bit. I don't know. I don't know how it works. But I get a little kickback from it. So please do buy the book through that link. Um, But you can contribute through the Patreon page. You can also do it. Contribute through the uh, Anchor.fm page. You can even tip me on Twitter, which is weird. And I don't know how that works, but you can do that there too. At um, Elton Reads a Lot, I think, on Twitter. Or just search for me on Twitter at uh, Elton Reads a Book a Week. You can do that on any social media thing too, and I'll pop up. You can follow me on all those. And uh, you know, subscribe to the podcast if you're not already. And uh, you know, all that stuff. Tell a friend too. Be sure to share the podcast. That helps more than anything. You can also rate and review it, but sharing it is super helpful. All right. You can tell a friend, a lover, a sister, a brother, a mother, a father, your landlord, civil engineer, toast enthusiast, constant gardener. You can tell Dietrich Bader about it, maybe Jenna Fisher, Alvin, and the Chipmunks, and maybe even Rachel Ray, your parole officer. Rachel Ray's parole officer, uh, Kenneth Robeson. Tell him, too. You can tell someone in the Bee Gees International Fan Club, if you're not already a member, or whoever happened to invent the coffee mug. You can tell all of those people. Um, Really, thank you. Above all else, thank you for listening. It's uh, such a pleasure making these. I really really do like making them. So, uh, Thank you for listening again. And uh, very importantly, a, uh, a lot importantly, start reading a book this week. Finish the book you started last week or the week before. Wrap one up. Don't let them die out. All right? Thank you. <laughs>